chapter eight of around the campfire by charles roberts this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eight the toledi and the temesquata none of us awoke next morning till the sun was high and the dew all gone in the open places about the camp the air was sweet with wild perfumes and alive with birds and butterflies it was near noon by the time we found ourselves afloat on the toledi river this is a larger stream than the squatook and much more violent the toledi falls are less than half a mile from the lake and most travellers portage around them rather than risk the difficult passage indeed the mighty plunging swells the succession of leaps the roar and tumult between those rocky walls render the passage by no means enticing when looked at in cold blood but we knew the channels and were resolved to run it it is no use attempting to tell just how we did it i only know we all yelled with fierce delight as we darted into the gorge and i imagine our eyes stuck out our muscles were like steel and we tingled to the finger-tips then came a few wild moments when every man did his level best without knowing exactly how for the white surges clashed deafeningly about us and with cheers we swept into the big eddy below the falls drenched but safe what cared we for a wedding in that clear sunshine the passion of travel was on us and we could not stay to fish all the rest of the run down to temesquata is like a dream to me few rocks few shoals a straight channel and always that tearing current at four in the afternoon a last mad rapid hurled us out into the wide expanse of temesquata there was a sharp wind on the lake which is thirty miles long and at this point about three miles wide in the heavy seas with our deep-laden canoes we had a rough and really perilous passage and it was not far from six o'clock when we reached the other shore there near the outskirts of the little village of detour du lac we pitched tent for the night after supper we took a run through the village and had a chat with some of the habitants we procured moreover some native madawaska tobacco which we smoked once and never smoked again around the fire that night we felt a sense of depression because our trip was drawing to an end at last magnus cried shake off this gloom boys a story stranian all right here's something light and bright answered stranian promptly let us call it chopping him down there is nothing that so cheers the heart of the lumberman as to play a practical joke on one whom he calls a greenhorn or in other words any one unused to the strange ways and flavour of the lumber camps as may be imagined the practical jokes in vogue in such rough company are not remarkable for gentleness one of the harshest and most dangerous as well as most admired is that known as chopping him down this means in a word that the unsophisticated stranger in the camp is invited to climb a tall tree to take observations or enjoy a remarkable view no sooner has he reached the top than a couple of vigorous axemen attack the tree at its base while the terrified stranger makes fierce haste to descend from his too lofty situation long before he can reach the ground the tree begins to topple the men shout to him to get on the upper side which he does with appalled alacrity and with a mighty swish and crash down comes the tree 
as a general rule the heavy branches so break the shock that the victim to his intense astonishment finds himself uninjured though frequently he is frightened out of a year's growth there are cases on record however where men have been crippled for life in this outrageous play and in some cases the boss of the camp forbids it but it is not only the greenhorn who is subject to this discipline of chopping down even veterans sometimes like to climb a tree and take a view beyond the forest and sometimes on a holiday or a sunday some contemplative woodsman will take refuge in a treetop to think of his sweetheart or else to eat a sheet of stolen gingerbread if his retreat be discovered by his comrades he is promptly chopped down with inextinguishable jeers i have mentioned stolen gingerbread this bread is a favorite delicacy in the camps and the cook who can make really good gingerbread is prized indeed it is made in wide thin tough sheets and while it is being served to the hands some fellow occasionally succeeds in hooking a whole sheet while the cook's back is toward him but in that same instant every man's hand is turned against him he darts into the woods devouring huge mouthfuls as he runs if he is very swift of foot he may escape eat his spoils in retirement and stroll back an hour later with a conscious air of triumph more often he has to take to a tree instantly all hands rush to chop him down he climbs no higher than is necessary perches himself on a stout limb and eats at his gingerbread for dear life he knows just what position to take for safety and often ere the tree comes down there is little gingerbread left to reward its captors the meagre remnant is usually handed over with an admirable submissiveness if it is not dropped in the fall and annihilated in the snow and debris at one time i knew a lumberman who succeeded in hiding his stolen gingerbread in his long bootlegs and slept with the boots under his head for security the camp was on the banks of a lake the time of the capture of the gingerbread was a saturday night in spring next morning the spoiler took possession of the one bateau belonging to the camp rode out into the lake beyond the reach of stones and snowballs and then calmly fished the gingerbread out of his boots sitting at ease in the bateau he devoured his dainty with the utmost deliberation while his chagrined comrades could only guy him from the shore for myself i was chopped down once and once only it happened in this way in the midwinter of eighteen seventy nine i had occasion to visit the chief camp on the little madawaska coming from the city and to a camp where i was a stranger to all the men i was not unnaturally regarded as a pronounced specimen of the greenhorn i took no pains to tell any one what the boss already well knew that is that i had been a frequenter of the camps from my boyhood many and many a neat trap was laid for my apparently tender feet but i avoided them all as if by accident as for climbing a tree i always laughed at the idea when it was proposed to me i always suggested that it might spoil my clothes before long the men by putting little things together came to the conclusion that i was an old stager and rather sheepishly they gave over their attempts to entrap me then i graciously waved my hand as it were and was frankly received as a veteran cleared from any suspicion of being green at last the day came when i did wish to climb a tree 
the camp was on a high plateau and not far off towered a magnificent pine tree growing out of the summit of a knoll in such a way as to command all the surrounding country its branches were phenomenally thick its girth of trunk was magnificent and this tree i resolved one day to climb in order to get a clear idea of the lay of the land of course i strolled off surreptitiously and as i thought unwatched but there i was much mistaken no sooner was i two-thirds of the way up the tree than with shouts of laughter the lumberman rushed out of the surrounding cover and proceeded to chop me down the chance was too good for them to lose i concealed my annoyance and made no attempt to descend on the contrary i thanked them for the little attention and climbed a few feet farther up to secure a position which i saw would be a safe one for me when the tree should fall as i did so i perceived with a gasp and a tremor that i was not alone in the tree there not ten feet above me stretched at full length along a large branch was a huge panther glaring with rage and terror from the men below his form was quite concealed glancing restlessly from me to my pursuers the brute seemed uncertain just what to do as i carefully refrained from climbing any farther up and tried to assume an air of not having observed him he apparently concluded that i was not his worst enemy in fact i dare say he understood what was going on and realized that he and i were fellow-sufferers i laughed softly to myself as i thought how my tormentors would be taken aback when that panther should come down among them i decided that considering their numbers there would be at least no more danger for them than that to which they were exposing me in their reckless fooling and already influenced by that touch of nature which makes us so wondrous kind i began to hope that the panther would succeed in escaping the trunk of the pine was so thick that i might almost have reached the ground before the choppers could cut it through at last it gave a mighty shudder and sagged to one side i balanced myself nimbly on the upper side steadying myself by a convenient branch the great mass of foliage presenting a wide surface to the air made the fall a comparatively slow one but the tremendous sweep of the draught upward as the treetop described its gigantic arc gave me a sickening sensation then came the final dull and thunderous crash and in an instant i found myself standing in my place jarred but unhurt with the snow threshed up all about me the next instant there was another roar or rather a sort of screaming yell overwhelming the riotous laughter of the woodsman and out of the confusion of pine boughs shot the tawny form of the panther in a whirlwind of fury one of the choppers was in his path and was bowled over like a clumsy ninepin the next bound brought the beast on to the backs of a yoke of oxen and his cruel claws severely scratched their necks as the poor animals bellowed and fell on their knees the panther paused with some idea apparently of fighting the whole assembled party but as the men recovered from their first amazement rushed with their axes to the rescue of the oxen the panther saw that the odds were all against him he turned half round and greeted his enemies with one terrific and strident snarl then bounded off into the forest at a pace which made it idle to pursue him the owner of the oxen hurled an axe after him but the missile flew wide of its mark 
as the excitement subsided and i saw that the chopper who had been knocked over was none the worse for his tumble i chaffed my tormentors unmercifully for their part they had no answer ready they seemed almost to think that i had conjured up the panther for the occasion i thanked them most fervently for coming to my rescue with such wholehearted good will and promised them that if ever again i got into a tree with a panther i would send for them at once then i set myself to doctoring the unfortunate oxen whose lacerated necks and shoulders we soon mended up with impromptu plasters and the owner of the oxen gratefully vowed to me if ever i see any of the chaps a-layin for you again and any of my critters is around i'll tip you to wink chore here goes for another lumberman's yarn began sam when stranion ceased it's brief so bear with it a rude awakening in the fir woods of the upper bartabog the snow was softening rapidly the spring thaws had come on several weeks earlier than they were expected consequently a great quantity of logs lay in the woods waiting to be hauled to the landing the hands at bober's camp were working with feverish energy in the effort to get all their logs out before the snow roads should go utterly to pieces old paul bober the boss of the camp had sent out to all the surrounding settlements for extra teams the first result of his efforts was a team of wild young steers which seemed hardly more than half broken to the yoke they were as long and gaunt as their driver long jim baisley but they looked equal to any amount of hard work them critters o yarn ain't much to look at jim remarked the boss as baisley came geeing and hawing them into camp toward sundown the steers swung their hinder quarters far apart and sagged restively on the yoke as they came to a halt the teamster rolled a loving eye upon them and replied just wait till i get a yankin onto the logs and then see what you think of em jim baisley was a smart teamster and on the following morning with his heart set on showing off his team to the best advantage he was the first to get to work hauling the snow was getting softer and softer a warm wind having blown all night so that there had been no chance for it to stiffen up this heightened the general anxiety and there was no time lost in following baisley to the ridge a patch of sloping forest where a lot of fine timber lay waiting to be hauled out from the ridge to the landing it was necessary to take a new road which had been already roughly chopped out as baisley with his lean cattle started out for the landing with a couple of huge timbers chained together behind them one of the hands shouted to remind him that he was the first to go over the new road look out for slumps jim cried the chopper this here snow ain't got no kind of a bottom to it now baisley rolled his eyes over the stretch of track before him which his load was soon to plough into picturesque disorder with a thoughtful gesture and very deliberately he spit a huge quantity of tobacco juice over the dull white soggy surface just in front of the oxen and then said i'll look out give me a peavy grasping the long white pole shod with a steel spike at the larger end he started his team toward the landing instead of walking beside his cattle in the teamster's customary place he travelled a few feet in front of their noses and from time to time he thrust the pike-pole sharply into the snow it must be borne in mind that the snow in these north shore woods lies anywhere from two to five feet deep 
under such a covering may lie concealed not only the firm forest floor but dangerous bog holes or steep little dry gullies hence the wise precaution which baisley took of feeling the way for his oxen the lack of such precaution has cost many a careless lumberman his team in the present case however so perverse a witch is chance baisley's very prudence was the well-spring of disaster his experience was such as might almost have led him to forswear precautions for the rest of his natural life as a teamster close behind baisley's team came another driven by tamman landry a little frenchman from down the river tamang as the frenchman was called by his comrades had great confidence in baisley's skill as a guide he felt it safe to take his team wherever baisley should take his presently baisley's pike-pole sank deeply into the snow with sudden and suspicious ease whoa he yelled rolling his eyes back upon the steers the team surged forward till they were almost upon him and he rapped them sharply across the muzzles then they stopped with their heads far down what's the matter inquired tamang skipping forward big hole here responded baisley he was prodding the snow near the trunk of a mighty tree solid ground further this way likely he continued and he gave a vicious prod some two feet farther out from the tree the result was something to startle even a backwoodsman the snowy surface rose up suddenly with a spluttering grunting noise as if an infant volcano were about breaking into eruption almost thrown off his feet baisley sprang to one side while the excitable tamang jumped into the air with a yell of astonishment the yoke of steers swerved wildly to one side and would have run away but for their heavy load then there emerged from the snow the hugest and hollowest of black bears his long fur thickly blotched with lumps of his white covering thus painfully and unceremoniously aroused from his winter sleep the bear was in a thoroughly justifiable rage perhaps also the pangs of unrealized hunger added to his fury he glanced with small red eyes from side to side then flung himself clumsily but swiftly upon the nearest ox with mad bellowing the team plunged in among the trees and in their terror so great was their strength that the great timbers they were hauling danced after them like jackstraws but this was not for long ere they had gone ten yards from the road the ox which the bear had struck blind with panic caught his long horns in a sapling and fell forward on his knees for a moment his yoke-fellow held him up then he collapsed in a limp red and white heap with his neck broken and the bear began tearing at him savagely paralyzed and helpless the other steers sank in the snow by this time however baisley and the frenchman had recovered their scattered wits and seized their axes baisley's eyes rolled wildly with pity for his team and wrath against the bear with the full sweep of his long wiry arms he swung his heavy axe and brought it down upon the animal's head at least that was baisley's amiable intention but any one who has tried to hit a bear over the head with an axe knows how difficult a feat it is to accomplish unless the bear is asleep this bear was very wide awake indeed baisley's pike-pole had seen to that though apparently engrossed with the dead steer he had been watching his assailants out of the corner of his eye 
just as the great axe began its deadly descent the beast half rose and like a flash threw up his mighty forearm on this the axe handle struck and glanced and the weapon flew violently off among the trees with a desperate exclamation baisley attempted to jump away and at the same moment the bear brought down his other paw with a stroke that all baisley's tried skill as a boxer could not have availed to parry but fortunately for the tall lumberman his footing gave way he fell headlong in the snow and the stroke of that armed paw passed harmlessly over him the bear dropped forward upon him but was at once distracted by a fierce blow on the shoulder from landry's axe with a snort he turned about and gave chase to the nimble little frenchman now this was in all respects a most fortunate diversion tamang was so light of foot that the snow easily upbore him he found himself able without difficulty to elude his floundering pursuer he took a short circuit among the trees and headed back toward the team baisley was now on his feet and himself again he was running to pick up his axe when tamang yelled no no spear him spear him with the peavy jim spear him with the peavy it was a good idea and baisley realized the force of it the steel-shod pike-pole was indeed a formidable weapon grasping it short in both hands baisley sprang upon the logs of his ill-fated load and a second later tamang came leaping past with the bear at his heels in an instant the plucky frenchman turned and faced his pursuer the bear rose on his hind legs to seize him and baisley's opportunity had arrived with all his force he drove the point of the pike-pole into the brute's body right under the foreshoulder down came the huge arm snapping the tough pole like a splinter but the steel point had gone home the bear fell dead close beside the dead ox whilst tamang with voluble excitement examined the two victims of baisley's wise precautions the latter with taciturn deliberation proceeded to unyoke the trembling steer from its ill-starred mate but from the way his eyes rolled in their lean sockets it was easy to see that the gaunt lumberman was doing some swift and energetic thinking now then magnus cried queerman we look to you will it be more about the lumber camps no replied magnus i shall introduce a beast of whom none of you have yet said a word yet he is an important beast and played no small part in preparing the land of canaan for the advent of the children of israel my story is saved by a hornet's nest i got the story just a few weeks ago when i was out fishing on the russia gornish with dick henderson near the shore we came upon a huge hornet's nest suspended beneath a bush swayed by the common impulse of destructiveness i suggested that we should set fire to the nest no indeed said dick if we attack the nest we deserve to get stung mr yellow jacket is a self-respecting citizen and will not trouble you unless you wantonly interfere with him if he resents aggression fiercely we cannot blame him for that can we besides a hornet's nest is held sacred among us hendersons you don't mean to confess i exclaimed that it symbolizes the spirit and temper of your family well not exactly replied dick but it certainly preserved the connection between flesh and spirit for our family at a very critical moment my grandfather henderson owed his life to a nest of hornets at a time when he a young man of twenty-two was the sole representative of his line 
the trout were not rising and the rapidly heating air persuaded to indolence i stood my rod up in a bush threw myself down in a shady spot and remarked to dick that he might as well tell me about his grandfather this invitation elicited the following curious story it was during the war of eighteen twelve the battles of chrysler's farm and chautauqua had not yet been fought and the canadians were in doubt as to the movements of the two american armies which were preparing to attack montreal they knew that general wilkinson was at sackett's harbor making ready to descend the st lawrence but in regard to general hampton who was advancing by way of lake champlain information was much in demand my grandfather james henderson who knew the country between the st lawrence and lake champlain volunteered to get the information he had many friends on the american side of the line most of whom as he knew heartily disapproved of this unnecessary struggle between the united states and england on these he depended for help if he should get caught and he really gave far too little heed to the nature of the risk he was running yet he took wise precautions and played his part with discretion with a ragged-looking horse and a shabby peddler's wagon and himself skilfully made up for the role of a country hawker he was comparatively secure from recognition indeed i have heard him boast that he made sales to some of his most intimate acquaintances who never for an instant dreamed that it was jim henderson whom they were haggling with all went prosperously until the very end of the adventure drew near my grandfather was returning with the important information that hampton's objective point was the mouth of the chicago river whence he would cross the st lawrence and descend upon montreal from lachine at smith's corners a little rudimentary village about ten miles from the canadian border my grandfather stopped for a bite of dinner jake smith the landlord of the little inn was a trusted friend and to him my grandfather revealed himself in obedience to a sudden impulse it was the first time on the whole journey that he had given the slightest clue to his true personality well for him that he yielded to this impulse else even the friendly hornet's nest to which we are coming presently would not have availed to save him jake smith was a stirring fellow who under ordinary circumstances would have liked nothing better than running a spy to earth but when that spy was jim henderson the case was different my grandfather had stood his horse and wagon in on the spacious barn floor and was having a wash in a little bedroom opening off the kitchen the bedroom door was partly closed suddenly through the crack of the door he caught sight of a small party of american militiamen at whose heels followed two huge brindled mastiffs or part mastiffs probably a cross between mastiff and bloodhound henderson confident in his disguise was just slipping on his coat with the idea of going out and speaking to the soldiers when the leader's voice addressing the landlord at the kitchen door arrested him where's that peddler chap that drove in here a few minutes ago inquired the officer puzzled at seeing no sign of the wagon what do you want of him inquired the landlord with an air of interest we'll show you presently said the officer and we'll want you too if we catch you trying to shelter a spy where is he i don't shelter no spies growled jake smith ambiguously and i'd advise you to keep your jaw for your own men the officer was about to make an angry reply but changed his mind that peddler said he firmly is a spy and it is your duty to assist in his capture is he in this house now smith knew better than to try to persuade the soldiers that henderson had driven away 
he saw they had certain knowledge of the spy's presence so he exclaimed a spy is he well i reckon you've about got him then he's drove his team in on the barn floor out of the sun and most likely but the whole squad were off for the barn to the woods the cave hissed smith toward the little bedroom and at the same instant my grandfather darted from the window down behind the tall rows of pole beans and a leafy bed of artichokes and gained the cover of the woods which touched on the rear edge of the garden he ran with desperate speed following at first a well-beaten cattle path that led straight into the woods but he had small hope of escape it was the glimpse he had got of those two great dogs that filled his soul with dismay for the troops alone he would have cared little he knew he could outrun most men and the forest afforded innumerable hiding-places but those dogs with no weapon but his sheath-knife he could hardly hope to overcome them without being himself disabled and if he were to take refuge in a tree they would just hold him there till their masters arrived to lead him off to an ignominious death my grandfather concluded however that his only chance for escape lay in fighting the dogs if he could kill them before the soldiers came up he might possibly get away but to make the most of this poor chance he must get deep into the woods and lead the dogs a long distance ahead of the troops he understood the sound tactics of dividing the enemy's forces he tightened his belt and ran on snatching up by the way a stout stick which some one had intended for a cane the cave of which smith had spoken lay about three miles from the village after following the cattle path for perhaps half a mile my grandfather turned a little to the right and plunged into the trackless forest his long nimble legs carried him swiftly over the innumerable obstructions of the forest floor his ears were strained anxiously to catch the first deep baying that would tell him the dogs were on his scent every minute that the dreadful voices delayed was an addition to his little stock of hopes if only he could reach the cave his chances of victory over the dogs would be much increased for the entrance to it was so small that only one of his assailants would be able to get in at a time at last when he had run about two miles his breath failed him he threw himself flat on his face on a bit of mossy ground beside a brook as he lay there gasping his mouth open his eyes shut suddenly along the resonant ground were borne to his ears the voices of the dogs when he sprang to his feet he could no longer hear them but he knew he must gain more time jumping into the brook he ran several hundred yards upstream then seizing a long overhanging branch he swung himself well ashore some ten feet clear of the bank as he once more headed for the cave he flattered himself not without reason that the dogs would lose some time before they picked up his scent again the baying of the pursuers soon came near enough to be distinctly heard and then grew in volume rapidly at last it stopped and he knew the dogs had reached the brook and were hunting for the scent before that sinister music rose again on the stillness of the wilderness air henderson came in sight of the hillside wherein the cave lay hidden just as he was congratulating himself that he had now a good chance of escape a thought occurred to him that dashed his hopes why said he to himself the dogs would most likely refuse to enter the cave seeing the smallness of the entrance they would no doubt stay baying outside keeping him like a rat in a hole until the soldiers should come and smoke him out 
however he decided to risk it he could at least block the entrance with stones and make some sort of fight at the last or even there might be some other exit some fissure in the hill which he had never explored at any rate he was too much exhausted to run any farther as he approached the low opening in the hillside a lot of hornets darted past his ears having a dread of hornets he glanced about nervously and imagined at first they were denizens of his cave but in a moment he saw the nest it was an immense gray globular structure hanging from the branch of a small fir tree at a height of about two feet from the ground it was not more than five or six feet from the cave and almost directly in front of it henderson was a man of resources and he appreciated the fighting prowess of a well-stirred colony of hornets he decided to enlist the colony in his defence the hornets were taking no notice of him whatever being intent on business of their own henderson took a long piece of string from his trousers pocket and in the most delicate fashion possible made one end fast to the branch which supported the nest then lying down flat on his face he squirmed softly past without getting into collision with the insects and crawled into the cave carrying with him the other end of the string once safely inside his first care was to grope around for a big stone or two these he soon procured and with their aid the entrance was blocked then he took off his coat he laid his ear to the crevices in his barricade the dogs were getting so near that he could hear now the crashing of their heavy forms as they bounded through the underbrush holding his coat ready to stop up if necessary the small openings he had left for observation he began jerking sharply on the string which connected him with the hornet's nest he could hear the furious buzzing which instantly arose as the hornets swarmed forth to resent the disturbance he could see how the air grew yellow all about the nest but it did not occur to the angry insects to seek for their disturber in the cave henderson jerked again and yet again and the enraged swarm grew thicker at this moment the dogs came into view very deadly and inexorable they looked as they bounded along heads low down their dark muscular bodies dashing the branches aside and bearing down the undergrowth now realizing perhaps that they had run their prey to earth they raised their heads and barked in a tone very different from that of their baying unfalteringly they dashed straight upon the barricade and one of them as he sprang past struck the nest a ruder shock than any that my grandfather's string had been able to give it in that same instant the exasperated hornets were upon the dogs a sharp chorus arose of angry and frightened yelpings yet for a few seconds the brave brutes persisted in their efforts to force an entrance to my grandfather's retreat this gave the hornets a fair chance they settled upon the animal's eyes ears and jaws till flesh and blood even dog flesh and blood could endure the fiery anguish no longer both dogs rolled over and over burrowing their noses in the moss and trying with their paws to scrape off their bitter assailants but the contest was too unequal presently both dogs stuck their tails between their legs and darted off in mad panic through the woods gradually their yelpings died away 
my grandfather then and there registered a vow that he would never again break up a hornet's nest he slackened the string till it lay loose and inconspicuous amid the moss but he did not exactly care to go out and detach it from the branch then he lay down and rested feeling pretty confident that the soldiers would not find their way to his retreat now that they were deprived of the assistance of the dogs as for the dogs he knew that their noses were pretty well spoiled for a day or two that night when he felt quite sure the hornets had gone to bed my grandfather crept out of his refuge stole softly past his little protectors without disturbing them to say farewell and struck across the forest in the direction of the canadian border a little later the moon got up and by her light he made good progress soon after daybreak he reached the banks of the chateauguay and about an hour later he fell in with a scouting party of the glengarry fencibles who took him to the headquarters of de salaberry the canadian commander as for the ragged old horse and the peddler's wagon they remained at smith's corners a keepsake for jake smith i think said ranolf that's a good enough yarn to go to bed on i'm as sleepy as a june bug upon this we all discovered that we were in the same condition as ranolf the exhilaration of the run down the Toledi and the hard strain of the passage across Temesquata had tired us through and through. How delicious were our blankets that night at Detour du Lac! End of chapter 8